Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Well, hello everyone. Um, it is my distinct honor to interview two people who work very closely together. We're going to learn a little bit more about that. Jennifer Richmond, who is my partner in crime on the Hold My Drink podcast and somebody I work with very closely, um, and Wink, who I've gotten to know as well, who is really, um, you know, a, a really good thinker and, and partner to Jennifer as well. So I feel like uh, I've gotten to know Wink through Jennifer, and I'm going to look forward to learning more about how they work together and what they're up to, because I know there's a lot. So, so the question that I want to start with is how did Jennifer, you, a white woman living in Texas, get to know Wink, um, a black man living in San Diego? What brought you two together? Okay, so we'll start at the beginning, right, Wink? <laughs> sure, yeah, definitely. So I guess it was 2018-ish when I decided, you know, I started writing about race issues and you know the, the, just polarization in general and i figured that if i was going to do that i needed to become more informed so the city of austin had a diversity training and i went to it it was a two-day like full-on training and it was it was a shocker it was a shock it was everything that you know david you and i have talked about just very um segregating us by the color of our skin. And I really went there and this was like, like kind of what Wink would say a gap moment for me because I went there thinking that I was gonna learn, uh, I was gonna be talking with other people. I was gonna be hearing different stories. I was gonna learn how to like kind of grow in empathy. And it was really a struggle session. It was a struggle right. session. And I, right. I, 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 I really just, I was shocked. So I wrote, so that's what I do. Like when I get shocked, I write. So I yeah. wrote a piece. Um, Helen Pluckrose at the time was was the editor of Ariel Magazine, and she published it. And lo and behold, it published, and I get get this email from this man named Winkfield Twyman, and mm -hmm. he's like, he tell you know, I think the first one of the first words that he said was, "I am only one of forty million black Americans. So I can only speak for myself, but <laughs> here's kind of my, my take on what, on what you said. And, and that's really how it all started. And we just started corresponding back and forth, these long, very like thoughtful conversation and email. He sent me his manuscript of, um, on Twyman road, which was his book. I, he'll I'm sure he can tell you a little bit about of connecting across the color line. And about, I don't know, we probably three months into our relationship in this very extensive, almost daily, like long form writing back and forth. I said, I think we've got a book. And I said, are you in? And he was like, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm in. And we've been writing now for about three years, right, Wink? Wow. Over 30 months. Wow. That's incredible. So, mm -hmm. so Wink, what? What made you reach out to Jennifer and let her know, you know, express support, if that's the correct word? Well, I, I, uh, I always enjoy good conversation, number one. 
And number two, I was intrigued and annoyed that she had been seeking conversation, good conversation with her diversity training uh, program and got condemnation. Uh, that didn't sit well with me because particularly in times where there's so much division in the public square, I mean, there's a, there's a special need and role for people uh, to come together and to have a genuine, honest conversation. Um, given my life story, and as Jennifer noted, I'm a strong believer in the philosophy that if there are over 40 million Black Americans, there are over 40 million different life stories, experiences, and perspectives. Um, it had been my feeling for some time that the things I knew, my life story, I, I never saw myself very much in the public discourse. And so I felt that this was a, a wonderful opportunity to reach out to someone who was in genuine uh, quest for uh, conversation and not condemnation. And so that was kind of what led me to reply to, to Jennifer. And also the idea that um, I am a uh, fan of personal genealogy. And two years before Jennifer's uh, uh, essay, I had totally uh, uh, broken through in terms of my ancestry. And that caused me to rethink um, many issues involving family history, uh, personal identity, and, uh, and a unified concept of American identity. And so I think uh, reading Jennifer's essay on the heels of my own breakthrough in my personal genealogy, uh, it just made a lot of sense. And I remember telling Jennifer that the people need to be having conversations across the color line um, are particularly old Americans because Americans who can trace their ancestry back before 1700 in the States um, have unique family experiences and memories and histories. And that's gonna be a better glue, I think, possibly for honest conversation than with say someone uh, who is a recent uh, immigrant from Hong Kong. And I mentioned that because one of my, my friends is a recent immigrant from Hong Kong and we have a splendid old great time, but when it comes to issues involving the color line and race, she's not here. You, you talk about reparations for American slavery and she just tunes out, the curtain falls across her face and why not, right? Because she came to the States in search of greater opportunity and upward mobility. Um, the idea that she would possibly have a, um, a dog in that fight for uh, events dating back to the 1600s doesn't resonate with her. And I totally get that. So that's why I thought it's old Americans, people who are descendants from this thing we call American slavery, have the most to gain and learn from a conversation about uh, race across the color line. I've said a lot, but let me tell you, I've only said one Ten thousands of what I've said with Jennifer over the past. Am I right, Jennifer? Mm. <laughs> You're yeah. going to write a lot of words. By the way, just my my wife is from Hong Kong, and I will tell okay. you, she absolutely has an opinion on that. But that's because she's been here a little longer. So okay, um, right, right. But, <laughs> um, but it's um, um, yeah, as you said, everybody's different, right? People from Hong Kong are as well. Um, so that's that's fascinating. I'm going to come back to how uh, to, a little later on to how. You've gone sort of deeper in your identity and what your study of genealogy produced, but I want to—I don't want to go there yet. If that's okay, Jennifer. That's I did not do hold my drink like the actual I drink, know. Oh. which uh, well, I was completely remiss. But because I'm not you, 
I don't start with it. I, I come I come at it like after the first set of questions. So, um, so <laughs> Jennifer, what, what are individual. you drinking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so I have to tell you, I do have a drink. And uh, David, I know you disagree with this, but I've been, I had some wine last night and I, my stomach's a little rough. And so I am drinking a hard kombucha again, which David tells me that he did. I said this, the, the healthy alcohol, and he, he, he questions that. But you know what? If I believe it, maybe it's so. So, yes, I've got a grapefruit hibiscus, not very holiday-ish, hard kombucha, trying to heal from my wine. Good, good, good. That's the way to do it. Uh, that's what the doctor says. Wink, wink what, what, do you, what do you got? I have a ginger beer. I love ginger beer. There you go. Uh, mm. As Jennifer knows, I have a genetic uh, weakness for sugar. And so I have to, uh, I'm always drawn to uh, things like ginger beer. So it's who I am. Right. <laughs> what, what, what's the drink that has ginger beer? And I think, is it wrong? It's, there's a really Moscow popular Mule. dark. Is it dark no, and stormy? That? Yeah, dark and stormy. There's a, those Ooh. are similar drinks. Dark for and stormy. Mule. That's a fun yes. drink in Bermuda. And I know that because my wife and I honeymoon in Bermuda. And Ooh, we yeah. uh, had many dark and stormies. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make one, me one of those when it warms up a little bit. Oh, that's yeah. great. Well, I, I just have a Diet Coke, you know, but. No, there, that's, there. that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, all right. So you all have written numerous articles together since then. What are some of the topics and themes that you covered? Wink, you want to start? Oh, sure. Uh, there are several themes and topics that we uh, cover. Um, I have approached our conversations with the idea that we should write, write about life plainly. So from the get-go, I have uh, tried to avoid uh, slogan words, to avoid communicating the use of slogan words. And why do I do that? Uh, for two reasons. One, slogan words cannot capture the nuance and complexity of life as is lived every day. So, number one. Number two, slogans, I feel, are many times susceptible to use for reinforcing a certain mindset, a certain worldview. I oppose that. To me, honest conversation is not about upholding some ideological framework. Honest conversation is about knowing the other person as deeply and purely and as authentically as you can. And so these surface features like skin color or eye color or hair color, uh, I think uh, melt away. And to be honest, and I've told Jennifer this, I think that the more we write, the more we come to the bedrock of personality. I truly believe, and I thought this before we started writing, that personality explains so much in society and what we see in terms of uh, outcomes. And that if we spent more time getting to know people as individual personalities and less as avatars for a race or a group, we mm. would dig so much deeper in terms of the authenticity of our conversation. So, but mm. to, to reflect back, so I don't use slogan words. And I think that was so helpful. In fact, I think Jennifer was surprised I wasn't surprised, but I think I was surprised. I, I think Jennifer was surprised that I was so eager to engage her using 300,000 words in the English language and not just 30 slogan words that we all know and recognize. 
and you discover a whole new universe of communicating when you're really driven by, well, I want to better understand you. You want to better understand me. And I'm not going to worry about the crowd or the Twitter mob or what mom-in-law might say or what mom might say or the daughter might say. You, you really just write openly and honestly. Um, now, and is it true that I have a Black American experience? Yes, it is. And so I think that in many ways that was quite helpful because, um, as Jennifer will tell you, her world has been somewhat um, isolated uh, from the Black American experience. She has a great international, global experience, right? And she has um, the experience of American slavery in her deep background. But I find that uh, one of the benefits I brought to our conversation was my uh, childhood having grown up uh, where I did, which was, I was born in Richmond, Virginia. So if you think about it, I was born I in well. ground zero of the Confederacy yes, in 1961. Were. And I thought about this the other day. Um, my first memory was as a four-year-old in 1965. So by the time I entered school, most of the civil rights legislation and programs and breakthroughs had been done. So in a sense, mm. I'm an excellent template for the full promise of America in a post-civil rights era, if you think about it, right? Because mm. uh, I, I wasn't born in Berkeley, California. I wasn't born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I, I knew what it meant to live in the shadow, if you will, of the deepest horrors in our past. But nonetheless, that wasn't my life. My life was public school integration in the late 1960s, a sub southern suburban integration uh, in public schools in the 1970s, UVA, go wahoo wah in the early 80s, Harvard Law School, work in a, a big deal law firm in Manhattan, and then eventually uh, meeting my wife, <clears throat> who comes from a particular subculture of Black America, and moving out to the West Coast and raising my kids uh, as California. So all of that is to say, um, I was so eager just to be involved in an authentic, honest conversation, because I never see that so much in the public square. I never see me in the public square. Where yeah. are the novels and screenplays for people who were born after the civil rights victories have been won? Yeah, it's you know, I I have this feeling that those of us who do this work, who sort of push back against ideology, a lot of it is because we have this deep thirst for authenticity mm. with with people. We in, our, in ourselves as well. We don't like ourselves when we're when we're speaking words that we don't believe. We can't. Some of us can't even do it. Like sometimes I cannot bring myself <laughs> to do it, and I and I and and I think like, what's wrong with me for not being able to say these words that I don't believe? Um, and and you know, but I I think that um, that. It must be that we're looking for others who who also want to live honest, open lives as much as we can. And that, that doesn't mean there aren't some things that we shouldn't be sharing, you know, at any given moment. But, you know, represent our true selves out there. And it's, it's uh, I think like, that's very like, powerful. It's like being gay in the village in the 1950s in Manhattan. Or it's like being a dissident in Prague in the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. and. You know, um, yeah. yeah, I was just, yeah, it was, with Wink, this is what I think one of the most awesome revelations was, although we write about race, 
although your our book is about race, although we connected over race, very quickly in our conversation, despite that being our topic, that was the least important thing that we discussed. You know, and I think through Wink, I see him, I, I just, the only way I can see him is, 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 is Wink, you know? I mean, um, again, we talk about race, we right. talk about his experiences and whatnot. And it's just that, you know, going to Wink's idea of, of personality, you know, he's very, when you ask what we write about, and we write about a lot of like personality and how certain, you know, we, we were talking about this the other day about culture and what exactly is mm. black culture. Is there such yeah. a thing as culture? And then we, so as we were kind of noodling with that, it was like, it was, it became, I, I and this is something that we talk about in our book is, you know, at first I came into our conversation thinking that there was a quote, Black culture, because you're told that there is, right? I mean, that's part of the narrative today. And through Wink, I realized that that, I really, I think that that's, I don't, I don't know that I believe that anymore. Mm. Um, I think that we have created a culture that we call Black culture or white culture or whatever. And I do, but I believe that culture is something that we, and David, I've learned this a lot too in, in our conversations with everyone that we have. I think that culture is largely creative and you can actually pick and choose culture to a certain extent. And that is something that was very clear to me, or that's something that was revealed in my relationship with Wink. And I think it's something that we, we struggle with in our book and in one of our major conversations is, is there such a thing? And if there is, even if there is, if it's something that we created, are you resigned to the the worst or the best aspects of any culture. Do you believe you were um, not exposed to the rich nuance and complexity uh, among people who are Black Americans? Absolutely. I was resigned to, although, you know, I have friends from all different backgrounds, um, including, you know, Black American friends, none, none, none like Wink, of course, but I- I'm unique. Yeah. yeah. But I believe that the when we talk about black culture in America today, we the way we have created that culture is this by we framed it in this oppressed oppressor paradigm. We framed it and, and Wink called me out on this right away in our writing. When I would talk about black culture before we kind of got into where I'm at now. So the book is actually like a part of it is a trans a transition for me is I, he would push back on me because I always ghettoized Black culture, right? It was the Tennessee Coates. It was the Nicole Hannah Jones. It was, that was, if there was such a thing, that was my translation of Black culture because that's how we talk about. And, and, and in some ways, I think Wink, he's very kind with me, <laughs> but he pushed back and he pushed back. I mean, I think that I would get under his skin sometimes. He's like, you are, you're like, imposing this idea on me you know of, of this right. ghetto of this you know and he's like that's not my life experience right I wonder if white culture is also in a sense being reified as well I mean look I've been all over the country you know you go to Elkins West Virginia and you go to let's say upper state New York and 
you know, I'm, you know, there are there things that bind them as Americans. Sure, are they every bit as different as probably, uh, you know, various strands of Black culture? Of course they are. You know, and um, and I think it's I think it's important to talk about culture because culture does exist. I mean, there are. Uh, codes of conduct and ways of, that groups of people behave together, um, or where there would be no differences among groups, which we can easily detect. So we have to understand that culture exists, but that doesn't. But, but we also have to talk about it in complex, nuanced ways. And I think, in some ways, that's what you're you're doing here is you're helping broaden our way of thinking about it, and that's really powerful. Um, so. You, you're you're working on a book you've already mentioned, and I happen to know that. I'm a little jealous. I'll tell you that, but that's okay. Um, I'll get I'll get I'll get by. Um, I'll be okay. But um, you know, so you're working on a book. What 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 themes are you really exploring in this book together? Hmm. Uh, do you want to take that, Jim, or should I? Why don't you uh, you take it, and I'll I'll pick up if I think there's any oh, gaps. That's no. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the book, um, which I, I like a lot, because what the book does is it starts in the year 2019 and brings us to the present. And, of course, a lot has happened uh, in the outside world. Wow. We, we had the, uh, you know, the, the George Floyd riots and we had a number of things. Um, but uh, the most sometimes the most important things happen at the micro level within your family, within your home. And so one of the things I like about the book is that you see Jen and I grow. You see us grow as parents uh, over uh, the, the three years. Um, in terms of the book itself, it has three parts. So one part talks about this idea of uh, American slavery uh, as it was and as it is. Um, one of my uh, constant uh, uh, refrains has been that um, in fact, I wrote something down, if I can take the liberty of quoting this. Um, I was listening to someone the other day on the podcast Trigonometry. You may have heard of that. Constantine and Francis. And they were talking so to a gentleman. Yeah, a gentleman from who had spent some time in Russia. And he talked about how immediate the gulags seemed to everyone. And it occurred to me, there were echoes of what that man said, but in a different context for me. Now, keep in mind, I grew up. I was born in 1961, Richard, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, until I was the age of, well, actually, until I went off to college. I lived within two miles of the Jefferson Davis Highway, which is named for the president of the Confederate States of America. But it occurred to me, if I were to go back home to Chester today, if I were to travel to Chester, Virginia, and ask anyone uh, at the Starbucks, do you have personal experience of American slavery? No one's going to say, oh, yeah, my grandpa's brother was shot or my grandparents were on the slave plantations or the overseer wiped out half of my family. You could go around the table at Starbucks in Chester. No one's going to have a story like that in their family background, their very immediate family background. And so I saw how different that is from the reality of what the uh, guest on Trichinantri had encountered in Russia as he talked with people. There, there really is that immediacy, right, of, uh, of, of, of the horrors. That's just not true in Virginia, Chester, Virginia, or dare I say, the rest of the South <laughs> or the rest of America. Um, slavery is something my grandmother's grandfather knew. 
Daniel Brown. And we talk about him in this first part of the book about American slavery. But Daniel Brown is not someone who comes across as tormented uh, or uh, uh, harmed psychologically by slavery. The opposite. He comes across as our family titan. It's almost a family founder, if you will. I, I think of John D. Rockefeller Sr. when I think of Daniel Brown, my grandma's grandfather, because he started for nothing and acquired over 500 acres of land in two counties after the Civil War. If anyone's going to be traumatized with the lingering effects of American slavery, it would have been my grandmother's grandfather, Daniel Brown, not my niece or nephew in the year 2022. So we talk about that in part one of the book. Part two of the book, and some one reader has said that's the strongest part of the book, is we really nail home this idea that we do a disservice to American history, to Black American history, when we think of it as slavery and lynching and Emmett Till and race riots. We do. We certainly do. I was telling Jennifer, as, as, a, as a preface, what I'm going to say, there were no lynchings in Chesterfield County, Virginia. I think there may have been maybe 3,000 or 4,000 over the course of history, but it wasn't like something happening every day in every jurisdiction. So I think we sometimes have a distorted sense of what life lived plainly was. So we need to look at the story of people who were free blacks, who managed to triumph over adversity during the time of slavery. And we look at several examples of people who really nailed home the idea that it's foresight, character, ambition, industry, education, personality that mattered even in the darkest days of American slavery. It wasn't, slavery was there, but it didn't stop people from achieving. It's so ironic that in the year 2022, we would teach black kids Blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. Uh, part three of our book uh, is a delightful part of our book, and I'm eager to hear Jen's reflections on this. Uh, as Jen came into our correspondence, she had this notion of you know, Black culture, Black experience as the oppressed in the city ghetto, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, came to her mind. And I disabused her of that right away, as she mentioned before. But part three of the book is a lovely, lovely, lovely account of what life was really like today for a Black family in San Diego. It's not an overseer. It's not a slave owner. It's, it's other issues. For example, um, Jack and Jill, which I think we'll, we will discuss in some detail. It's about, will the daughter get into Yale or not? And her stressing the night before. Uh, it's about... Uh, communications with the lovely wife. Am I truly Archie Bunker or not when I have you know, individual thoughts and ideas about race? So chapter three is delightful. And then we conclude the book with a series of uh, ideas on how we can, as a community, as a country, have these more genuine, honest conversations in the public square. I've talked too much, but that's kind of my sense of the three parts of the book. Yeah, take it away, Jennifer. Before, before one second, before you do, sure. I just want. I also listened to the latest trigonometry. I think with John McWhorter, and I've heard McWhorter since his book came out, probably in five or six, seven different podcasts. But he right. he made a point that I thought also reinforces what we've been saying, which is that let's not forget that 
two thirds of the, the uh, black community today is not in poverty, that they're actually in the middle class. In fact, it's actually a much smaller percentage that are in poverty. I think it's around 18, 19% who are living on, below the poverty line. So, but two thirds live in the middle class today. And that really does paint a very different picture than one, one thinks. And I think we do a disservice to the community in a way by suggesting that this is a community that's entirely in distress everywhere. I mean, there you know there may be problem, major problems in inner city Chicago, but that is not the that is not the majority or even close to how the overwhelming majority of blacks live today in America. And I I think that's a really important thing um, for people to realize, and they we lose that in this current discourse. So forces, okay, that's yeah. Go it ahead. forces a quick uh, point. It forces the black upper middle class American to live in double think. Yes. It forces you to adopt the slogan words of oppression, eternal oppression, but at the same time, stress your application to Harvard Business School <laughs> right. or the University of Virginia Equity Scholars Program. So it's, 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 it's terrible if you think about it because we are most healthy and in most harmony when we live aligned with our life lived plainly. We're not living our lives plainly if we have to live in double, double think. Yeah, that's a term that uh, Natan Sharansky, the great Soviet Jewish dissident, used in a in a um, a webinar that we just did with him. I've heard him use it before, yeah. and he was and he, was, he said, "Listen, if you were in the Soviet Union under communism, you either had to be a dissident, which was very dangerous; you could get killed, you could get jailed, yeah. or you had or you had to be a true believer, and there were not that many of them, or you had to live in a state of double thing." And his point was, "You all." Do not have to live in double think. You might actually lose a job. You might lose a few friends, but you, in a fundamental sense, you don't have to live in double think. And if if I could do this and be a dissident and, and put my life on the line, you can exercise the kind of courage that would allow you not to live in double think. So anyway, that's another side. So Jen, what's your, what's your role in the book? What are the kinds of things that you're sharing that might be a little different than what Wink is sharing? You know, it, 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 it's, it kind of changed over time, if you will. So when I reread the book for the gazillionth time yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. in our editing process, I, I, it's actually really fascinating to me. Um, what I see is it's two things. It's Wink's story of agency and family history. Uh, he talks about, like he said, part one is we do American slavery as it was and as it is. And let me give a little bit more context to that. So he, when Wink and I first started writing, when, when we agreed that we were going to write a book together, he said, I'm not going to write. <laughs> he had demands for me. Of course. Right. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> he said, you've got to read. He, he had me read several things. One of the first things he had me read was our kind of people. Um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking right now. The author of By, that. Uh, Lawrence Otis Graham. Graham. He was my uh, classmate in law school. Class mm -hmm. of 19. Well, anyway, yeah. And then um, he had me read Thomas Weld's American Slavery as it is, which was a thousand accounts, eyewitness accounts. I mean, this was written back down, you know, in the 1800s. 1839. I, 1839, eyewitness accounts of, I mean, just brutal, brutal yeah stories that I mean it just yeah uh, anyways um <laughs> so we we he had me start there and then for me it was this 
struggle with the story that as a white person, I'm being told that I'm the oppressor. And then now like really like my eyes being open to so much of the brutality that I, I knew it was there, but when you're reading a thousand eyewitness accounts, I mean, it's, it's something else, you know? And, but where we kind of ended up in, in that chapter was we're reliving it. We're, we're, we're reliving it. And so that's why we name it American slavery as it was like, okay, here's how it really was. And we're reliving it in the mind today. So, you know, the title is American slavery as it was and as it is, because we continue to insist in this oppressive, you know, oppressed, oppressor discussion. And, but here's, so I, I'm going to, one of our biggest disagreements happens in part one. And this was when Wink says to me, and I'm going to get back to your, to answer your question, David, but Wink says to me, can we just come together as old Americans and see our history together as old Americans. And I said, I like your idea, but I think that that would be seen as sidestepping history. And Wink, <laughs> he still says that. He's like, he, he, <laughs> he, he like picked up on it. He's like, and, and Wink, I'm gonna let you like, cause this was such a fascinating, I mean, we went over this chapter I mean, it was, we went over it and over it and we got angry with each other and we fought with each other. And, and then it was like, you know, I said, look, I like your idea. I'm just saying in the way we discuss race today, it would be seen as, would I like to be there? Yes, but I think it would be seen as sites of in history. And so um, before I would like Wink to, to address that and where he cut and where that really upset him. Um, but I wanted to go back to your question first, David, is so it, the first story was this kind of narrative of, of American slavery uh, from the stories that Wink had me dive into and do research. And the second, uh, the second part, which Wink already mentioned, was stories of agency and Black resilience and uplift, because in so much of what we hear today in, in history is just the, 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 the negative, right? It's not the uplift, it's not the resiliency. But what I, now as a, to answer your question, as I'm reading it, it's almost wink in a way, telling his story and me transitioning from this idea of oppression to one of agency. And at the very end of the book, the last, section where Wink is really talking about like we're talking about now living life in, in 20, you know, 2019 to 2022, we get, we kind of end the book with this idea of, of, uh, of retiring from race. Don't give it all away. I know. I know. <laughs> that, that was the, that's the question I was going to ask Wink if, about his uh, identity journey. So, um, but, uh, but let's, um, I don't know if we're ready for that yet. I want to, because we're, I want to, that gets into you uh, in a particular sense. Um, although it sounds like you've both been looking at it. Um, yeah, so um, how has this changed each of you? And I think you're touching on this, but how has the encounter with each other and sort of negotiating the book and negotiating your writing, how has it changed? And I want to I want to put a precursor to that. I guess it's not a precursor anymore because I didn't. But um, you know, one one thing that it strikes me is that 
you know, I, 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 probably like both of you, I'm constantly in these sort of battles with uh, very ideological folk who accuse me of all sorts of horrors around, you know, race and racism and the rest. And and one thing I, I think that they don't they that they don't understand is that we are actually deeply interested in and enmeshed in in the discourse over equality and in the discourse of making America live up to its own ideals. We just don't agree, we just don't start with the same set of assumptions that um, that they do, and that, and we feel that we're more likely to get to truth, whatever that is, um, by encountering real people talking about themselves and their experiences and their ideas than we are through this sort of adopted discourse that we might have. So I, so that's why I'm very curious about, and I'll go back to my question, how it is that you, how that encounter has, has changed you. Hmm. Why don't you start Jennifer? Well, I mean, for me, it's been, it's been everything. Uh, I found a friendship and a relationship with Wink that was unexpected. I found an honesty in Wink that I've not had before. And then we're not talking, this is beyond race, just as, as friends and being able to write and being able, and we've shared, like Wink said, I think over the course of our book, and you see this evolve as well as in our book. I mean, our lives have, I mean, he, he's been with me as my father has struggled with cancer. Um, as both of you know, well, obviously Wink knows this, but you know, David, as you also know, you know, my husband's in law enforcement. So he's been with me as we went through George Floyd um, and the just total uh, defund the police and outcry around that. And he's had his own stories, you know, from his and his family over these issues. And he's someone that I have, um, when I'm in distress, he's who I write. I mean, so to have that and then to be it, but it's so much more than race, but to be able to talk to him about the racial tension that we're having in America and to be able to get that honest feedback and not to shy away. Um, in some ways, actually, I'm just thinking about this right now. In some ways, Wink, it's been kind of in a way almost dangerous for me How because- fun. Because I expect everyone to be like Wink. And and most people are not open-minded or curious or driven by authenticity or... I think a lot... Well, David and I, because we, you know, we have this podcast, so we get to have a lot of authentic conversations. But I still feel like in the public square, some of the conversations that you and I, Wink, have had... And it'll be interesting when the book comes out. Um, As I told you, I, 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 I give you even money. It'll be ignored and dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> we have, we have, we, I think we can release this now. We've had um, a person who will be writing the foreword for the book is Eric Smith, who makes it into our book because he writes about how a lot of black voices, black voices have been erased and replaced. And so Wink is kind of touching on that with the ignored and dismissed. Um, so for me, it's been, it's been this, again, I, the book for me, for me, it's a journey. I think for, for Wink, it's his telling of his story. For me, it's the, it's the journey of, of an honest dialogue around something that's been, um, that we are having in America and my growth around that. Um, so that's how it's changed me. 
So oh, you wink. All right. How it's changed me, changed me. Um, I'm going to try to give a good answer to that worthy of Jen's uh, response. Um, changed me. Um, I think at one level, before I get into concrete things, but at one level, I think it's forced me to be more revelatory about things that I have packed away and tried to forget over time. And so Jen knows uh, examples. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of a, a lovely, tall, red-haired, freckled, dimpled basketball player uh, that I knew in junior high and high school and how prejudice and bigotry played a part in my interaction with her. But those are things I had put away, you know, for, you know, 30 or 40 years. So, so it kind of changed me in that sense. I was kind of forced to unlock the, um, the box to things that I had uh, put away. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a healthy thing. Because as Horace Gump once said, you have to put the past behind you before you can move on. So I think that was important. Um, in terms of more concrete changes for me, I'll list three. Uh, number one, uh, I was so starved to share my frustrations with Jack and Jill. And so I could just unload with Jennifer for weeks and months. And that felt very good. Now, have we, we have not really discussed what Jack and Jill is. I mean, just suffice to say, it is a, an elite group of black moms and this group was formed in 1938 in Philadelphia. And the aim is to uh, nurture and instill a sense of black heritage in uh, the children of the black upper middle class. Um, I am not in Jack and Jill. However, I happen to live amongst four generations of Jack and Jill members. And so that tension was great for me to be able to release with the understanding uh, eye and ear of Jennifer. Because uh, think about that, Jennifer. Really, there's no one else in my inner circle that I've ever shared those thoughts with or that could relate. If I were to try to relate to my lovely wife, well, we know what that would be, right? <laughs> if I try to relate to my lovely mom-in-law, well, we know where that story goes, right? If I try to relate to my, my lovely daughter, well, we know how that would end up. So one of the sad consequences, I think, of certain ways of thinking and being in the world is that for the individual nonconformist, it really raises the question, is there a place for the individual in blackness? I've raised that question with Jennifer before. I'm not sure I know the answer, but if we were to look solely at Jack and Jill, you know, it's hard to conclude the answer is, no, there's not really a place, but I don't want to live in a world like that. So that's why for me, having Jennifer as a correspondent, a pen pal has been wonderful. You know, it's like having my personal therapist. I had another Yahoo email. Um, so number two, how has it changed me? Oh, yes. I would not be the same. One day I was working and I came across this stupendous, stupendous essay in Tablet Magazine. It was authored by a uh, writer, a former Soviet immigrant uh, resident uh, named Isabella Taborowski. And her essay was titled American Soviet Mentality. And it was stunning to me. It transformed mm -hmm. me. She articulated many of the concerns and anxieties I had 
about the triumph of slogan worlds in the uh, public discourse. And we were so blessed to have her on our podcast. And I've kept in touch with her. And uh, that transformed me. There is so much value to be taken from the experience of people who knew Soviet repression in their young days. Why aren't we listening to people? Why aren't we listening to more people like Isabella who, who can warn us of the developing dark clouds ahead? Finally, the third change, and I've touched on this before, just the importance of personality. I, I kind of knew that coming in, and I feel even more strongly that way. I mean, Jim and I are both intuitive, what is it, introverted, intuitive feeling types. We only differ on one dimension of the Briggs-Myers mm-hmm. test. But you can see that every time we talk. So it's like two complementary personalities, and you can really dig so deep into things when you complement one another. I think so oftentimes we ignore personality, we create avatars for race, and people just butt heads because they're not engaging or seeing or perceiving the world the same way. When you have two people who pretty much perceive the world the same way, the surface differences melt away. It really doesn't matter if Jen is white or I'm black or whatever. What really matters is how are you hardwired to see the world and you're on the sense of a mutual journey, as Jen puts it. Uh, And so for me, just being able to be in a community of fellow nonconformists, first Jen, then the folks at Counterweight, shout out to the nonconformers in Counterweight, to Eric Smith, uh, and to David, and to Isabella, and many more. for me has been so wonderful. And it's so, it's almost like my breakthrough didn't happen because of race. It happened because I was true to myself as a nonconformist who sees the problems in the way we structure and speak. That's all I got to say. Yes, we all find each other and it sort of gives us a way of, of, doing what we do because we have other people who experience the world similarly. I, I'm not the same Myers-Briggs type that you you are, but but however I'm wired, I'm wired to be a nonconformist. That is for sure. I, so I want to put, I don't think it's really a case study, but something that I'm struggling with and see how you both answer it, whether you answer it similarly or differently. Um, so I've been struggling with this, the concept of Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and all lives matter. I can add that too. Sure. Um, on the one hand, when I first heard the term Black Lives Matter, um, put aside whatever political implications it had, I sort of understood it like, yes, Black Lives do matter. And as a literal phrase, Black Lives Matter, right? And um, and I know from my experience as a Jew that I don't like it when somebody appropriates the Holocaust and uses it to mean something completely different. So when they use a term like concentration camp, which I understand in a very specific way, if they were actually talking about a concentration camp, I might be okay with it. But a lot of times they're not. They're talking about, you know, um, you know, a place where immigrants are living in uh, in Texas yeah. or something. It's not a concentration camp. There's nobody, there's no ovens. There's no... Um, there's no forced labor. Um, and and so I, I understand why some Black Americans would be very protective of the phrase. Um, on the other hand, um, I know, Jen, from our conversations, um, I think I can say this, that uh, that you have a Blue Lives Matter. Your husband is in law enforcement. 
And and when I first heard it, I sort of had a reaction to it. Not I wasn't. I was just like, whoa! I had to process it a little bit. And I knew somebody else who had a Blue Lives Matter sign on their yard right at the beginning of the whole post George Floyd eruption in society. And I and it made me. Uh, it made, at first, I winced a little bit. I was like, because I felt like it was appropriating. But then the more I've seen the plight of police and how that's really shifted in society, I understand why police need something of their own to say, you know, we have rights too. We we have we have an identity. We're, we're, we have an important function in society. And that's now being downplayed. I understand it. Um, but I, but, you know, so help me understand how, how should I regard Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Maybe I'll start with you, Wink. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I certainly have lived within the ambit of, quote unquote, Black Lives Matter. Uh, my, my children have, have the mask and the stickers and someone I know who I will refer to as Shelby uh, has that those terms emblazed on her T-shirt. Um, you know, I... My, I remember three years ago, one of my sons, we were at the supermarket. And he asked me, Dad, what do you think of Black Lives Matter? And this is like 2017 or 2018. And I said, you know, I kind of find it mildly offensive. And why did I say that? Because, you know, as a kid who grew up in Chesterfield County, Virginia in the 60s and 70s, uh, everyone in my universe was Black. So, of course... Black Lives Matter, it was a given. It's kind of like the sky is blue or water is wet, right? Um, or a beating heart keeps us alive. And because I just took those things as axioms in life, it, it just seemed mildly off-putting to me that someone would reduce that to a slogan for whatever purposes the slogan may be used for. So that was my first reaction to it. Um, I really try not to do slogans, as you can tell, or, or utilize slogans. So even the idea of having to address this kind of doesn't sit well with me um, because I, I, I'm always um, disdainful of people weaponizing slogan words for purposes that I may not agree with. So that's all I'll say about that. In terms of um, Blue Lives Matter, once again, I don't really like slogan words. I don't find that offensive. Um, I do find offensive people who engage in collective demonization, as Isabella, our friend, talked about in her wonderful essay, I repeat, American Soviet Mentality. Um, her idea is that, you know, collective demonization has invaded American culture and consciousness. And to me, I saw that a few months ago, maybe a year or two ago. Someone I know, we, we were driving by uh, a Blue Lives Matter rally, and the person I know said in the car, uh, those are white supremacists. And I, I, was, I, was off, I was off of my high talking with Isabella, and I immediately thought, that's wrong. You can't demonize a group of people with a slur or a slogan. And so... I, I said, no, you don't know who those people are. And my father-in-law was a New York City police officer. So if anything, you know, I feel a sense of family uh, towards law enforcement officials. But um, we got into it. Uh, I think we uh, got into a heated argument and we didn't talk to one another for a week. 
a week because some slogan word had driven a wedge between us. And so that's why I really, um, mm. I really don't like slogan words because they make us dumb, as Isabella has written, and they create, they, 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 they force theory onto reality. Reality should define theory, not the reverse. So, yeah, I mean, there was a better time in the 1990s and 2000s when we just thought in terms of, I think, more so individuals and people who were policemen were just people policemen. Um, I'm going to sum up because I could, I could go on forever. But and this is in our book, actually, we talk about this. Um, I once had a relative who I will not name, but I love him. Peace out to you. I have a relative who said to me in a text message. Every black man has some story with the cops. And he was being genuine and authentic, and he sincerely believed that. And because I'm an easygoing, harmonious person, I didn't challenge him. I could have. I didn't. But I do not have a quote-unquote police story. We talk about that in our book. Um, the most time I've ever spent with a police officer was an occasion for which I was so grateful, eternally blessed. My, we were in Mammoth, California, and it was a raging blizzard. And, you know, we're, 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 you've heard the term country bumpkins. We were city bumpkins. We didn't know anything about snow chains, snow tires. So we got stuck on the side of the road. It was like 20 degrees. It's a blizzard. You can't see more than 20 feet in front of you. We were, we were stuck. I was trying to put the snow chains on. My hands were freezing. And what did I see? But I saw the angel, the angels approaching us. It was a California state police officer. Nice as nice could be. Hello, you guys, are you having some problems? I said, yes, yes. <laughs> Help us. I don't know how to put this on the tire. He spent about maybe 10 to 15 minutes helping us put all of our chains on our tires and directing us on the best way to go to get back to the closest hotel in Mammoth. And that was a wonderful encounter, wonderful experience. If that's my only experience with law enforcement, then, you know, I'd say, two, you know, two thumbs up. <laughs> that's all I got to say. Oh, Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, you know, my story is personal already. Um, and again, we live with this, you know, with with me in, in many ways. But, you know, when... And this is again, I don't want to give way too much because this is actually a story in our book, but the um the blue lives matter. So my husband, well before George Floyd had put up uh, you know, at being a cop, a, 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 this is before he even became political. This was actually, I think, under Obama when the five cops were killed in Dallas. He put up a flag. We have an American flag out. And so he he put it that. So it's been there for, you know, even before, you know, Trump came into office. And we don't talk about politics in our books, by the way. <laughs> That's on the true. Side. We do not. That is true. That is true. <clears throat> Anyways, though, um, when this happened and the heat was really on, when George Floyd died and the heat was really on towards the police, uh, we got, I mean, there was a, there was a time where my husband and I, we, we really disagreed over the flag. Um, I've never, I even suggested that maybe for a minute we take it down. I've never seen a look of betrayal in someone's eyes. And it, it, it 
really just, I mean, because even though I understood, you know, I, I, I do think like, I think, you know, if you were, if you were to put up the blue flag as a result of George Floyd, I kind of think that would be in poor taste. But the fact that we had it up all this time, and of course, not a lot of people didn't know that and they were just paying attention to it now, right? But the fact that I suggested that we take it down, this is a man who his entire life, since he was 18 years old, you know, worked in a city protecting the lives of people who primarily weren't the same color as him. And the sense of betrayal that I saw, it broke my heart. It broke my heart and, and it, it was such a rupture in our relationship, we had to take like a little, a, a little break, you know, I mean, I wouldn't kind of hung out with some friends for a week just to let it die down. So that's a personal story. Um, and because it's so personal, I have a hard time kind of seeing beyond that. However, you know, I will say again, I think that's where Wink and I are in our book is like just bringing those kinds of stories and giving them substance where when you, and, and I hope what people might take from it is to stop with the, the assumptions, to stop with the group think, to stop with the identification. So that if you were to see that blue line flag that all of a sudden you assume, I mean, this day and age has become almost like a Confederate flag, right? You know, I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's become that, that, you know, but that you actually like look beyond that and try to find out who that person is beyond the labels and the um, uh, the stereotypes and the avatars, as Wink likes to say, the caricatures. And yeah, I guess that's that, that, that's been a big part of this journey with me is like learning to realize that we are so much more than those labels and those slogans and, and Wink's already talked spoken about the slogans so right well yeah. thank you for giving me a new way to think about my struggle over this issue thank you very much um I'll have to I'm still processing but I I I think that's yeah maybe I don't need to spend so much time thinking about it because after all it's all just a slogan um mm -hmm. so when's the book come out Mm. Oh, good question. <laughs> it's anticipated for October 2022. So we're very excited and, and grateful. A big shout out to Helen Pluckrose, who is writing the afterword. Uh, it's being published by Pitchstone Publishing, who uh, published Cynical Theories. And uh, another big shout out to Eric Smith, as we mentioned, who's writing the forward. So we're still in the um, copyright or not copyright, we're copy editing, sorry, that's the word I wanted, uh, yes. phase of this and putting on the final touches. So that's... Do you want to mention the two big names we have for blurbs or not? Ooh, you yeah. did that. That's exciting. Yeah, this has been, actually, this has been such, a, this is such a cool part of the journey too, because sure. I did not expect, I'll let Wink, I'll let you tell that story, sure. but Wink reached out to a couple of people and I didn't expect the feedback from the um, the world of psychology. So go week. True, true. Yeah, I I, I just sent out uh, uh, some letters to people I respected. I um, have a series of books in my uh, my home, and I um, uh, there are some books I particularly like, and so I sent letters out to the authors to see if they might be interested in um, 
offering comments in our book or writing a blurb. And I got two responses. So we are pleased that um, the renowned psychology professor, uh, is it uh, Phil Zimbardo, mm-hmm. uh, will be offering a blurb. He's very renowned in the world of psychology. He's out of Stanford. And uh, Martin, is it Martin Seligman? Seligman. Yes, yes. Yes, he's mm-hmm. the leading expert on positive psychology, and we're very pleased about that because it shows it shows several things. Number one, it shows that we're onto something by reaching out to one another with authenticity. Number two, it shows that there are other people, big names, that see the value of this in the public square. Uh, and number three, uh, <laughs> it also shows that sometimes people can be very excited one of our, our people, as Jen knows, was so excited that they kind of jumped the gun and were trying to get us more airplay than we wanted <laughs> at the time. But we're very pleased. We're very pleased with that. Um, and we already are planning, we're planning on, um, you know, in the new year, we're going to start, you know, because our correspondence lately, or our, our um, conversations lately have been around like the, the tech, the logistical issues of the book, but we're really excited because in 2022, we're going to start writing again. Um, we feel like there's so much more. Do, do you want to share the possible topic or not? To boldly go where no man has gone before. <laughs> Wink is, okay, I'll leave this teaser with you. Wink <laughs> loves so much of our themes in our book. He loves Star Trek. Okay, he, is, he is a Trekkie. I am. Which 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 series do you like? The original, of course. The original classic, Captain Kirk, yeah. Mister you know Spock, Doctor McCoy. He even has yeah. a Star Trek. Like he on Halloween, he's got a Star Trek outfit. He has. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, I'm the next generation guys. So what can I say? <laughs> that, I like that too. I like that too. No question about that. So yeah. yeah. Anyway. But we. I often think sometimes, you know, we. We, we could imagine such a better world back in the 1960s. And isn't it ironic that 60 years since the future were where we are today? Isn't that ironic in a way? Yeah, wow. It's uh, really terrific um, speaking to you both. And I wish you best of luck with the book and can't wait to get my hands on it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.